I'm Logan Bishop from Belmont University. And I'm Jenna Spinelli from Penn State. You're listening to Higher Ed Social, part of the Connect EDU network. Welcome to the show. We're back and we're here with Dr. David Mee from uh, Campbell University. And we'll just let him introduce himself. Well, hi, guys. It's certainly great to be with you and uh, look forward to the conversation. Um, so I joined Campbell University back in June as Vice President for Enrollment Management. Um, March 1st of this year will mark the, I guess, the start of my 35th year Um doing this. And uh, like a lot of folks in enrollment management, admissions related work, I certainly didn't start out thinking that uh, I would do this as a career. Um, thought I would be an admissions counselor for a couple of years uh, until the quote real job came along. And I think I, I realized uh, within a year or two that that this could be a real job. And that there were not only career opportunities, um, but also ways to um, perhaps leverage interests and gifts and abilities and learn a lot from other folks who had gone before me. And I think through some good mentoring and encouragement of people along the way, um, really found a, a sense of purpose and satisfaction. It's not to say this isn't a challenging line of work, as you both know. Uh, and every year, boy, 2020, in the last 34 years, the year 2020 will go down in history for a lot of reasons, uh, and we're still living through it right now. But I've worked at uh, a handful of different um, uh, private uh, colleges, universities, uh, spent about five years in between, um, primarily focused in, in higher ed consulting. So 60 to 70 different admission enrollment offices around the country. And that was a um, really kind of a nice uh, experience between uh, campus uh, assignments. Um, but enjoying my time back in North Carolina now and, and working at Campbell and um, like many of my colleagues across the country, working through this really interesting year um, that I'm sure we're going to learn a lot from and look back on. So where are you from originally? Uh, I grew up in Rochester, New York, actually. Um, Western New Yorker, proud Buffalo Bills fan. Uh, my dad was a lifer uh, at Eastman Kodak, headquartered in Rochester. He was a research chemist there. Uh, so I um, have been down south, oh, since the late 1990s, about uh, 23 years, I guess, since my wife and I moved south and both our daughters uh, now in college, but both of them were born in the south. So they really don't know what true winter is. Uh, I have to you know, <laughs> tell them tell them stories, you know, of growing up on Lake Ontario and lake effect snow and how we could get a foot of snow overnight and never even think that school might not be open the next day, you know, and now down here, well, it's a bit different in the South. So just a little bit, especially, um, where you guys live. Um, let's see. So, uh, Campbell, is it what Bowie's Creek? Well, yeah, Bowie's Creek, North Carolina, or as we like to refer to it, the Creek, um, we're uh, South of, of Raleigh, uh, about a, 35, 40 minute drive to, to Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, so really kind of the benefit of a, um, uh, a location that really uh, avails itself to a lot of outdoor activities. Uh, the campus here at Campbell covers about 1700 acres. Uh, really is a beautiful location, but we're just a couple of hours from the beach. Uh, and as I said, about 40 minutes from the metro area of Raleigh. So it's, it's a nice, uh, nice balance actually. 
And at least a couple of those acres are a golf course, right? That is true. Uh, Campbell um, has, um, uh, has had for many years um, uh, both a very competitive intercollegiate golf program for men and women, but we also have a BBA, a Bachelor of Business Administration in Professional Golf Management, only about one of 18 uh, approved programs in partnership with the PGA nationally. Uh, and so it's really a, a laboratory. Um, it is a 27-hole golf club um, um, with, with those playing and members from all over the area, but it also is, is part of the academic program mm-hmm. uh, in Campbell. And folks going through that program, students going through the PGM program, going on to serve in the golf industry in lots of different ways across the country. So um, institutions often have some niche programs and no question that uh, professional golf management is one of the, the niche programs here. Yeah, we have one of those at Penn State as well. We're one of the 18, I guess. And I remember from my days in admissions, it being very, very competitive, uh, I guess, because there are so few of them around. You're right. So you not only need to to have um, an interest in the program, you also have to be a, a rather accomplished golfer, too. Um, so it is a because uh, many of these folks will go on, you know, to do uh, things where your your academic background, as well as your uh, playing ability is sort of intertwined. And so um, uh, our family lives actually on one of the holes in the golf course. And it really is kind of neat to be um, that close to campus and to do something I really enjoy um, with various degrees of success, I will say, honestly, but uh, <laughs> you know, to be able to get outside very easily. And, um, you know, even in the winter um, uh, to be able to play a little bit. So and it's fun. It's fun being here. Um, but really, I, I would say sort of to summarize, you know, Logan, from the in, intro question you asked, um, my journey in higher ed has been uh, one that each move um, um, kind of came at an interesting time when I wasn't necessarily looking for the next opportunity. I think, you know, when folks talk about a career and they get to be the age I am, um, sometimes there's very uh, intentional, almost job searches that occur when it's time to move to the next thing. And for me, uh, it really has been much more about the network, about people I've gotten to know along the way, about suggestions of opportunities, some of which I didn't pursue, um, um, and, and others, a few, um, that ended up being, being a, a good next step. Um, I may very well be in that final sort of uh, step uh, professionally, um, if, if that all works out that way. But as I look back on it and think about it, it really has been much more a, a story of really how important our, our industry that we all work in and, and building a network is. Um, you know, it's not only comforting in difficult times to be able to reach out to people who know exactly what you're going through and can both commiserate and give you a pep talk, um, but also, you know, a handful of times throughout your life they suggest uh, other opportunities that may be worth looking at. So um, uh, my prior, uh, uh, my prior uh, assignment, appointment, I guess, as you would say, with the previous 10 years at Belmont University in Nashville, as you know, um, and, and what a tremendous experience that was. I mean, I, I worked with um, really some of the, the, the most talented people I've ever worked with in higher ed, worked at a place that um, um, has not only been very successful in enrollment, but carving out a niche, understanding the importance of, of brand, um, leveraging that um, in, in a way that suited the mission of that institution in a, in a very creative and entrepreneurial way. And uh, I'm blessed to be at, at, at a place 
Eric Campbell, um, that has a, a lot of neat things going on and diversity of academic programs, which often is a hallmark of institutions that will not only survive, I think, but thrive in, in a very changing higher education marketplace and being nimble and willing to, to make decisions um, maybe a bit more quickly uh, than the academy is known for. So um, um, I, I've just been very fortunate along the way to um, to work at, at similar and very unique places. And uh, um, I know when it's all said and done, I'll look back and say, you know, those that, that time many years ago when I started as an admission counselor and kind of realized that one could carve out a place for him or herself in this field for an entire career, um, it was indeed possible. And, you know, it's, it's not usual. I mean, you think about maybe, you know, certainly my parents' generation, uh, and my in-laws and so on, you know, working for one company or in one very specific industry was more the norm, far more the norm than, than it is now. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I feel fortunate to have uh, um, you know, had opportunities right still within the same niche. Well, I've been lucky because um, as you mentioned, you worked at Belmont and, you know, I, I used to work for you. So I guess you're the second <laughs> boss that we've had on the show. Um, yeah. previous boss because yeah. um, Annie Annie Mitchell's been on the show before too sure. Um, sure. and she's at Millsaps College now in Mississippi that's right in yeah. Mississippi yeah um, so she's moved like, on from Wofford huh? so does this mean I gotta start calling up my former bosses to get them on the show is that what we have to do here I just wait till they leave the university and then then they're they're free to come on the show oh. um, there you go. Because it's a new rule for worry. the podcast that's right. I don't have to worry about getting in trouble yeah um, <laughs> So, you know, I'll say this, and, and this is something that, and I just want to brag on David just a little bit. Um, Belmont is definitely a school that, um, you know, has its own special programs, you know, the niche programs, music business, of course, nursing being one of ours, though ours is kind of crazy because we have niche programs like all over the place um, and all across the board. Uh, but what's interesting is that, you know, in David's tenure, he helped Belmont grow significantly since, uh, you know, in, in the, what, 10 years that you were there. I think Belmont, I was trying to do the math in my head. I think we were under 7,000 students. Um, we were in the 6,700 6, maybe? 5,400 when I arrived. Yeah. 5,400. So we were at 5,400 yeah. students, and then now we're at 8,200 um, wow. plus. Um, got to throw that plus in there. Um, but, uh, but David helped us grow to that. Um, and you know, his leadership, um, his, his, you know, ability to, to take us from where we were to where we are now, um, with, with a communication plan that works great. And, um, you know, just really helping centralize the way we do admissions marketing, um, and, and that's one of the things that I've been a part of, and I've always, I've always, you know, cherished at Belmont, I guess, mm -hmm. is the, the closeness between marketing and admissions, mm -hmm. um, our ability to work together and not against each other. Mm -hmm. Um, like, like what happens at so many other universities, yeah. um, where admissions has its own marketing department and they do their own thing versus, uh, university marketing. And, yeah. um, it's just been great. And, you know, I work really closely with admissions as I've said on the show before, and David's the, the guy that I worked with. 
um, and the rest of his awesome team. Um, well, not his team anymore, but uh, they are all awesome people. And, um, you know, his legacy, uh, you can still hear the echoes of David Mee in the halls. Um, and, and that's, that's, you know, we have a, we have a new, uh, a new associate provost and dean of enrollment at Belmont, and he's an amazing guy. Um, and he's got big shoes to fill. And that's something that, that, that's great. And, um, David and I have had a lot of fun and, and I miss him a lot, but mm. I'm really glad that you can play golf now and yeah, well, but, right outside your house. Well, to be clear also too, that's, you know, kind of a, a largely a side weekend activity and uh, still, still fully employed, you know, full time, uh, but Logan, you know, and you're very kind and I appreciate that. Um, and I will, I will return uh, the compliments sincerely to say that, that, that Logan's work uh, and, and those of the team in, um, university marketing and communications at Belmont is, is, is truly outstanding. I think, you know, I've used the word nimble before. Um, you know, we, we had a freedom. We shared, and I, and I believe it really continues at Belmont, uh, and, and uh, certainly we work with it here as well. But there was a nimbleness and a freedom to not, I would say, laminate our plans. You know, the moment you begin to laminate things or put them in binders, you know, you can be sure that something will occur that you wish you didn't do that. So I think there's a nimbleness there. Um, you know, let the market speak. You know, we can have our opinions. I, I can tell you whether I like a certain design or not. But ultimately, the market will tell you. And, and, and so I'm a big believer that you look at the key points of the admission funnel and, and how things are moving or not moving through it and, and ask yourself some pretty tough questions. Why? Both from a positive you know, and a constructive viewpoint. So I think the um, that's super important. And I also think what you said, Logan, is indeed true, that institutions that I believe, and we saw it happen um, there with you all at Belmont, and I've seen it at other places, um, the, the, the partnership between the traditional enrollment management, the traditional admission office functions, and those that make up um, whatever an institution calls marketing, brand management, whatever it happens to be, um, both needn't be um, uh, a contentious relationship, but even more importantly, needs to be almost a, a symbiotic one. In other words, we realize that we succeed together, and we have experienced uh, we have we have we experienced those successes, I should say, uh, together. And ultimately, it's not about one office winning something; it's about the university mission and purpose continuing in a way that's reaching more good fit students for the place, um, for the college or the university. So, you know, I, I think it doesn't need to be overly complicated and it doesn't need um, complex org charts or things of that nature. The other thing I'll say, um, and I appreciate, let me say, the, the ability to sort of uh, think on the fly here, Logan, but um, I think the other thing that's important um, is, is a word that I've hearkened back to so many times in recent years, and it's trust. Um, so you know, my theory, if you were to talk about, uh, or if you would ask the question, rather, um, what are some of your theories sort of in terms of leadership and, 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 and multiple offices working together? Um, for the benefit of the institution, including in student recruitment and enrollment management areas. I think the word trust is so important because it doesn't necessarily mean, it doesn't mean, I should say, that we always agree. In fact, if we're always agreeing on everything, I have to begin to wonder the sincerity of that. You know, I mean, are we really challenging each other? 
So sometimes there's a little bit of a, an organization's a bit of a, I don't know if I call it a facade or whatever, to give the appearance that we all get along well and we never have a disagreement and we never challenge each other. I don't think that should ever be the goal. Um, at the same time, you know, when you're in a trusting environment, and, and I would say uh, in, in the um, description that Logan had of the past decade or so at Belmont, um, that was really important um, because even though we may or may not agree on a certain idea or a certain option, it was never a situation where we questioned the intent or questioned the agenda or whatever you want to say of the individual. You know, um, I, I think we enjoy trust. And so when that was checked off and we didn't have to worry about that anymore, we, we, we were free to say, OK, well, that's an interesting idea. But have you thought about it this way? And no one had to sit back and say, wait a second, what is that person really trying to get to? You know, right. you could just talk honestly because trust was taken care of. And I think any qualified psychologist or counselor or whomever would tell you, I mean, that's really kind of the basis of all relationships, whether they're, you know, between siblings, between um, spouses, between significant others, boss, uh, direct report, colleagues, whatever mm -hmm. it is. You know, that that word is so key. Um, right. So that, so that comes back to mind. So how um, how have those dynamics changed for you during the, the past year of the, mm. the pandemic, both the, that trust factor, your approach to leadership, keeping your staff motivated, all those kind of things? Sure. Well, I think, you know, um, I would say as, as challenging as 2020 was in, in a national and global sense, and let's face it, it continues to be, um, you know, thankfully, there's, I think, some some hope on the horizon, but um I think our, our leadership, our nation's leadership is continuing to make it clear that, you know, there are there are tough days ahead and we need to stay the course. Um, having said that, um, I will say that many of us have had other challenging years, perhaps more on a micro level within an institution, you know, budgets, uh, certain downturns in, in something that's more local and particular to the institution. So I, I wouldn't want to say that in 34 years of doing this, 33 have been without challenge and there was just one. <laughs> um, it was just much different. I, I think that from a leadership uh, perspective, uh, Jenna, and for thinking from it, it over the last year, you know, not being physically in the room with colleagues for extended periods of time, um, you know, was something that we all wondered about. Now, in fairness, when our staffs dispersed and went to largely rotating or uh, certainly remote work, I think a year ago almost, we thought, well, maybe a few weeks, maybe a month, maybe two at the most. You know, so none of us were really seeing um, how, how this was going to go. And, and perhaps that was good, um, that in some ways we were just taking it one day at a time. But I do think coming back to that matter of trust, um, you know, it probably was tested in many, many work environments, many organizations, not limited to higher education, but certainly including the work that we all do. Um, um, just saying, hey, you know, we're going to have to learn what it means to, to, to meet in this remote way. We're going to have to, um, you know, be flexible with the way that we um, measure things being done. And perhaps we need to think of them in a different way. So I do think, again, you know, I, I tend to be a relatively optimistic person and, and see the glass as, as half full most of the time. You know, I am hopeful um, that coming out of this, this most um, um, terrible situation for our country and for our world 
and and for you know many of us who who know families and friends who have been directly affected my hope is that we don't lose the opportunity to say what did we learn um, what will we preserve that maybe initially was more of a 11th hour we just have to do something differently I do think that some institutions, in one example, when, when students were sent home um, for most college universities, there were some institutions that did not have a long-standing tradition of, of, of you know, distance online, perhaps even asynchronous um, uh, teaching. Uh, and so in about 48 hours, they had to figure it out. And um, you know, several faculty who will say, you know, if you if you thought about this theoretically and called committees together and we'd be six, eight months mm-hmm. into this still still wrestling with rather theoretical concepts. Well, we didn't have that choice. If our students were going to be delivered um, a quality education to at least complete the spring 20 semester and then, as we found out, you know, leading into the fall 20 semester, um, we didn't have that time. We didn't have that luxury. So what did we learn about ourselves? You know, we're capable. We have, we're blessed to work with smart people. Um, and I think we began also uh, as an industry or just higher education in general to really listen to some of the folks on our campuses who aren't normally or hadn't been normally what I would call up in front of everybody else. You know, in some ways, you know, we knew they existed and they were there to support our work. But maybe we only thought much about it when, you know, a system went down or email wasn't working or this this um, um, particular class that I'm teaching that relies on technology had a momentary blip and I needed someone's help. Well, these folks took some real frontline valuable roles. And so I guess, you know, from a leadership perspective, just as a reminder that the glue to our individual institutions is far broader than maybe many of us realized before, let's say, roughly February, you know, a year ago. Along the same points of 2020 and the pandemic, um, we have a lot of folks that listen that aren't admissions folks. And, you know, I think it would be helpful for them maybe to know what their admissions officers um, at their institutions are going through. Like, what are Mm -hmm. the challenges that you're facing right now? Well, I think, you know, uh, very practical, what we're living in right now um, for the fall 21 admission cycle um, is is curious in many ways. Um, you know, I think if you looked at it broadly, you know, many of my colleagues would say um, that students um, seem to be hunkering down a bit more. Um, I think there's evidence to suggest that when it's all said and done, students will have applied to fewer institutions on average than a year ago. Um, that perhaps um, at least traditional students, and I mean what we think of in first-year freshmen and perhaps traditional age transfer students, um, may consider fewer places. They may stay closer to home. Um, You know, there's, I think, understandably, um, a reliance on the familiar, the, the, when I say comfortable, I mean places with which we already have familiarity. Um, and, And so, you know, Many institutions found that their um, admission um, cycle, the pool of applicants built a bit later um, and that there was sort of a, I will say around September of 2020, sort of a, wow, this seems to be going on pause here with what we're seeing in terms of application traffic and and things of that nature. Now, many institutions have rebounded a bit or are going through a process, but I do think that there is by and large a um, 
in a very cyclical world, Logan, to your question, for those who don't work in admission, you know, we rely on, I know what December should feel like. I know what February should feel like. I know what activities should generally be taking place in the recruitment and enrollment of, of students who are a great fit for our institution. And likewise, they're attracted to be with us. So, you know, in, in years of doing this, you know, month of May, I can give you the four or five things that are normally going on. Well, you know, it, it's a little bit up in the air right now. Um, and uh, for many institutions, um, you know, they're, they're now engaging students in the college application process, especially if they're amongst the majority of American higher ed um, that works on a largely rolling admission basis. Um, they're now um, having conversations with students that might have occurred on average back in November or December. So, you know, you, you, I think this can be applied to lots of different industries and lots of different organizations where if you work in a business that has some cyclical nature to it, um, you know, you've sort of had to trust instinct and to still work your plan, if you will, in a way that is optimistic that there'll be some level of evening out. Now, the big question is, at least in the world in which I work, is come the 22 cycle for fall of 22, Will we have some return to normal expectations or will have the world in this case of college admissions sort of reset itself, you know, almost like a control alt delete, if you will. And it's rebooting in a somewhat different way. I have a sense that that will be the case. Um, probably the last thing to come back with any sort of normality for us Um and even if you don't work in admission, perhaps you went to college or have a child who has and you've been through this. The campus visit, especially for traditional campuses, has been completely turned upside down. The ability to physically get on a campus and get a sense for what it's like as a prospective student, what is it like to be a student there, you know, has been rendered to virtual environments, which, thank goodness, technology provides a lot of options, or what I would call rather controlled visits to campus that limit access to certain areas, um, you know, certainly understandably require us to still follow all uh, state and, and federal guidelines for maintaining a safe environment. Um, and um, it, it just feels, it feels very different in, in that regard. And so that's probably the last thing to come back in, in a way that feels to those of us who have done this for a long time, semi-normal, it, it's, it's hosting people, physically hosting people. And if you're a primarily residential campus where the majority of undergraduate students live on your campus, well, indeed, that's a, um, that's a very different world. Yeah, the campus visits the single most important aspect, uh, the, the thing that helps people make the decision to come to any institution. I mean, it's the most important thing and people can't do it Yeah. Um, or they, they're doing it, like you said, on a limited, um, very limited kind of visit kind of situation. Yeah. Um, and, and that's that's got to scare people. Um, I mean. Well, and perhaps that does help sort of legitimize or help explain some of the um, commentators and those who write on our industry and comment on it, why they believe they'll be little bit of a hunkering down and staying a bit more with the familiar. Perhaps that's due in part to not having as much opportunity to go and visit a second or third choice institution in a different part of the country, just because you wanted to have that as part of the college search journey. You know, travel's been more difficult, air travel, mm -hmm. legitimate concerns about staying in hotels. I mean, it, the list goes on and on. And you can see that what 
other industries experience is very much transferable to, to, um, to higher education. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly um, feel very badly for students who have looked forward with anticipation, you know, perhaps since even junior high school to being able to go out um, with, with uh, mom or dad or my whole family or whatever it may be, and, and, and have the, the rite of passage, the considering of lots of great places. I mean, we're very fortunate in this country to have thousands of options. And, uh, you know, students have had to look at it differently. Um, and I know real estate agents have felt this. The hospitality industry has certainly felt this. So a higher education is not immune uh, to this at all. And sometimes I think when there's a little bit of an ivory tower sort of perspective of higher ed up on the hill, um, um, it, it is far more connected to what's happening in the real world and the challenges than some folks who don't work in this field every day realize. And the majority of institutions are tuition driven. Um, they may you know, receive certainly some benefit from endowments and other uh, type of, of, of investments and so on. Um, but the notion that um, that is the, the, the common is, is not accurate. The majority of, of institutions, both public and private, you know, rely heavily on what is happening right now this semester um, with the flow of, of revenue from um, tuition and fees and other things like that, you know, 80, 90 percent often and making up an institution's annual budget. So it is very much um, susceptible to what's happening in the world. Well, yeah, and even it, it spells out, I don't know if this is the case where you are, but, you know, I, I live in a what's basically a, a company town. Right. And so it spills over into, you know, we have several new student high-rise apartments going up in our downtown. And it's unclear to me right now who's, where the students are who are going to live in said apartments, you know, next year, the year after. So it, yeah, it definitely, you know, spills over into the the rest of the the local economy too. I mean, probably not so much for you, Logan, there's plenty of, to keep Nashville up and going if Belmont would say, you know, something would, would change for the worst there, but, you know, lots of other places are not quite in that same position. There would be a lot less people at open mic nights. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. right. Belmont students yeah. do make up a whole lot of the live mm. music scene. Mm. Um, yeah, that's that's a thing. It's a thing. Um, it's what happens when you're a, a such a music business mm. school yeah. um, like we are. Um, well, you're right. I was so, just going to say. I was just going to say too. You know, I think that um, I, I feel from families. Um, uh, just a, a yearning or a confidence that the, the return to some level of normality uh, for their sons and daughters going to college at this stage in life is not too far away. Um, and, you know, we all have that hope that that's the case. But I will say, and I, I perhaps we can all agree, uh, and, and, you know, you, you, know, you watch news and, uh, and, and read online commentary. I think the notion of returning to the way things were as if it's just a flip the switch and that was a bad dream and that's over, that's, it's not going to happen. And so what my hope is, as sort of an internal optimist here, is that we can look back and say there are half a dozen primary things in our business um, that we are... Um, going to to carry forward, even though they may not be due to what I would call health-related matters. They may be more due to student-centric thinking. 
um, to to uh, stewardship of our of our fiscal resources in a way now that we can earmark them for other purposes and perhaps not need to spend as much on quote the old way of doing it. So um, there will be um, a, a place for those who work in higher education as well as just about every industry across the country of those who help and, and encourage us all to take with us as the as the um, the smoke clears, if you will, or the light is the end of the tunnel and begin to say, regardless of what things are we going to carry forward? Yeah. And I hope that's the legacy. I really do. I hope it is. It sounds like a good place to end it. I don't know. Yep. That's what I was thinking. Thanks, David, for joining us this week. Well, my, my pleasure. Um, always love connecting with, with friends out there and, and those who are sharing some common experiences and challenges. And you know, I think the great thing about higher ed, and I'll wrap up, is much of what we talk about on a daily basis is, is not all that uncommon from what others who are doing some similar things in other walks of life. And uh, so making those connections, I think, is, is hugely valuable. That's warm and fuzzy. All the warm and fuzzies. All the warm and fuzzies. Listeners, head down to higher and get links to the stuff we talked about today and subscribe to the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us and it lets us know what you think of the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at HES Podcast and send us a tweet. We love talking to you. And don't forget to let us know if you want to be on the show. Higher Ed Social was created by Jackie Vetrano and me, Logan Bishop. And we're part of the Connect EDU Network, the first podcast network for higher education. Visit the website connectedu.network and subscribe to some awesome shows no matter where you work on campus. Thanks, and we'll see you soon.